mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Com and definitely check out those shows as well. 
Today's episode is with best-selling author Danny Shapiro. Danny has been one of my favorite authors of all time since I read her memoir Slow Motion decades ago and have been following her career ever since. This was a recording of the live Striker Center event we did together for 500 plus people in real time, and I hope you enjoy it. Danny Shapiro is the author of 11 books and the host and creator of the hit podcast Family Secrets. Her most recent novel, Signal Fires, was named a best book of 2022 by Time Magazine, Washington Post, Amazon, and others, and it is a national bestseller. Her most recent memoir, Inheritance, was an instant New York Times bestseller and named a best book of 2019 by Elle, Vanity Fair, Wired, and Real Simple. Danny's work has been published in 14 languages, and she's currently developing Signal Fires for its television adaptation. Danny's book on the process and craft of writing, still writing, is being reissued on the occasion of its 10th anniversary in 2023. She occasionally teaches workshops and retreats and is the co-founder of the Sirenland Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. Enjoy. Hi, Danny. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. This is so fun. As you know, you have been like my favorite author forever and ever. And I should have pulled out, I have all your original copies of like slow motion and all the other ones behind me. But anyway, so nice to be talking to you again today as a lifetime fan. (laughs) Both of us in our studies. Signal fires. Oh my gosh. So, so beautiful. As you saw, I just recommended on Good Morning America, but it didn't need that. It's already just so, you know, everybody who's read it is like, oh my gosh, have you read Signal Fires? It's my, it's the best book I've read in so long. It's such a great novel. And I totally agree. It's just wonderful. So, and I didn't realize because originally I had the galley, but that on the hardcover, you even have this little fingerprint and uh, cut out of the tree situation here as well. I know. That was such a beautiful detail. I mean, every Knopf, my publisher, did such a gorgeous job with, with this book and just, what it what it what it looks like is is I think what it feels like, or at least that's what I hope. Because in my computer, when I was writing it and it didn't have a title yet, my title for it actually still is in my um, in my files, magic novel, just oh. magic novel. I didn't have a title until I finished it, and I think that design really captures some of that. Oh, totally, Danny. For those who have not read Signal Fires yet, would you mind giving the quick synopsis? Sure. So. The way that I think of Signal Fires is that it revolves around this constellation of characters. There are seven main characters that are comprised of two families, the Wilfs and the Shankmans. And the Wilfs and the Shankmans live in a fictional town called Avalon. That is something like if Dobbs Ferry met Westport, like early Westport. Uh, that's how I think of Avalon. Um, the, the Wilfs first moved there in 1970. And the Shankmans don't move there until just before New Year's of 1999. But these families end up uh, very powerfully connected to each other, not simply because they live on the same street, Division Street, but because there are these kind of complex connections between them over the span of their lifetime. So the the novel takes place over the course of 50 years, but it's not chronological. It moves in and around time. And I think that the the beating heart of the book for me is a young boy. He's young, a young boy when we meet him. He's 11, um, named Waldo Shankman, who really is the one who sees everything and connects everything, both in this neighborhood and in terms of 
the history of what happened in on this street in this town, a, a tragic accident does start the book out. But I'm really trying to not describe it that way because the book is not about a tragic accident. It's about the aftermath. And the thing about, I mean, all of life is an aftermath in a way. And I was really interested in exploring what these characters, how the impact of both having had something really difficult happen and then the choice to keep that a secret, how that was going to impact them over the course of decades and decades in in, in their lives. I feel like the book has an accident, but it's about the meaning of life and the meaning of family, <laughs> right? I mean, it's about like everything, everything from the the trees, the matter around us to the stars above, to the people you love. I mean, it is the most, you know, I mean, it's about everything in a way, but the, to tell the everything, you have to go really specific. So I feel like that's what you, you did as a point of reference in a way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I started the book a long time ago um, and sort of lost my way, which we can talk about um, if if that's of interest. But the thing for me is that when I returned to it, which is not something I ever thought I was going to do, I never thought I was going to return to, to that manuscript. I thought I had just lost it. It was in the early days of the pandemic. And one of the um, many things swirling around my head and my heart in those early uh, days of the pandemic, I think this is true for so many of us, was the understand the deep understanding of how connected we all are, the deep understanding of just the interdependence and interconnectivity of, you know, what it is to be a human being on the planet. And I wanted, you know, I mean, the, the book was already about that, but it sort of went into warp speed of, 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 of really being about the ways in which we rely on one another both consciously and sometimes without ever knowing why. And I was I was so interested in exploring that in the ways that our lives can glance up against each other with perfect strangers. I mean, and 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 yet, why sometimes do we meet someone and think, I know you, you are so familiar to me. And that just that that sense of of, of deep and powerful connection. And, and I wanted I wanted to explore that. So there are people who are connected to each other in this book because they are family, uh, because they've grown up together, because they're related to each other. But there also are people who are connected in much more mysterious ways that become clear over the course of the book. Love it. I feel like this is your whole soulful, spiritual thing at play. <laughs> yes. I, and when I, I saw you um, at McNally Jackson with Amor Tolls and you talked about how you had it in the drawer and you were, you found it and said, well, what's, what's this kid up to? What would he be up to now if we fast forwarded him in time to today? So yes, talk about that. I found that fascinating. Well, I, I, I loved that realization because don't we all want to do that in some way? I mean, I know I do. I, I just like a glimpse um, can I just see what, um, you know, when, when I first started Signal Fires, the magic novel, my son was around Waldo's age. He was, he was 10, 11 years old. And, and I could imagine little sort of glimmers of who he might become. I mean, Waldo, not my son. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was really, I was, I was very focused on his life as an 11 year old boy. I was just just in love with this character. And when I sort of lost my way in those pages, 
those initial pages, it was because I was telling the story backward in time and I was very committed to that structure and the structure wasn't working, but I was just hell bent on making it work and having it conform to my will. And it doesn't work that way when you're writing a novel. And so when I returned to it and I reread those pages and I had the thought, now it's 2020, who would that 11-year-old boy be? Oh, he'd be a college student, probably. He, he, he was a special, brilliant child. You know, if he, if he wasn't sort of broken by life, he would end up being this kind of really remarkable young adult, which is, which is what I wanted for him and what happened. And this would be the beginning of the pandemic. Where would he be? Would he be back at home in his childhood room? What would have happened to his parents? Another character in, in the novel um, is named Theo Wilf, and he is a chef. And when we meet him in you know, 1999 and in 2010, in sections that I had already written, he is actually becoming a well-known chef with a tiny little gem of a restaurant in Brooklyn. And I thought, well, who would Theo be in 2020, right in the first wave of COVID hitting New York City? What would he be doing? I mean, food is love for him. How would he be, how would he be navigating the pandemic? And so it just really opened up in my mind. And I thought I can. I, instead of telling the story in a linear way and instead of t- telling the story backward, which didn't work, I can really unplug time, you know, upend time and tell the story in all of these different layers of time with these seven characters and these key moments in our, our lives. I mean, not every year, not every day, not every month, not even every decade is necessarily the most profound but we know the moments that are. And I wanted to explore those moments, but in a, as you said, to be in a very detailed, specific, you know, very grounded way, you know, for each of, for each of the characters. So it's easy to say that theoretically, I'm going to play with time. I'm going to mix it up, but you have so many pages of stories and scenes and material and characters. How did you do that? Did you print it out and put it on the floor and rearrange? Did you just like cut and paste? Like, how did you execute that vision? It's a great question. I mean, I think in the 15 years between when I started this novel and when I returned to it, I learned a lot in my nonfiction writing. Uh, in my memoir writing about how to tell a story in a more kaleidoscopic way. I mean, my memoir, Hourglass, begins and ends in the same place. I mean, I was very fond of saying when that book came out, there is no plot. (laughs) (laughs) My publisher wasn't so happy with me probably, but there wasn't a plot in the traditional sense of, is plot what keeps us turning the pages? In some books, yes. In mysteries, yes. I have become increasingly interested both as a writer and a reader over these years in the way that we experience time. And, you know, we're always, we're always bringing our pasts along with us. We are always every age we've ever been in some way and a smell or a sight or a sound or a moment or an an event can be like a, um, like a, like a portal to you know, like a game of shoots and ladders is the way that I always think of it is like, you're kind of moving along, moving along, moving along. And oh, well, actually you're back to square one or you're back to that memory or that moment. Our memories are not chronological. And, and when we think about our future, we, we, we don't know what will happen, but we also 
have fantasies or dreams or fears or anxieties. All of that is always at play. So we're we're kind of carrying our futures and our pasts alongside us all the time. And I wanted to create that on the page. So no, I did not cut and paste. I did not spread it all over my office floor. Although in the case of others of my books, I've, I've much more had to identify the pattern. In this case, and it was really just this really profound experience, those 100 pages that I had written 15 years ago, they remained intact. They were like in a time capsule. They were like an insect trapped in amber. They already existed really as they were. And when I went back into the book with the knowledge of I'm going to add 2020 to this mix, suddenly I realized that the events that begin to take place on this one night in 2010, well, we can come back to that. We can we can move forward, we can move backward. And as long as the reader is with me, as long as I've created, uh, the way that I think of them is, is not a particularly literary term, but it's like lily pads, you know, like we'll jump from one lily pad to another if the author has given us the, the faith and the confidence and the trust that she knows what she's doing and, and is going to be able to sort of guide the story, you know, and, and create the story. So when I returned to the book, I actually wrote what is now the very, very opening that, that, that those few pages of the accident of the tragedy that happens that take, that takes place on, on, on a night in 1985, I wrote them, but they had been like somebody recently wrote something online about that opening, you know, page and, and very admiringly, which was lovely and like asked me how long it took or something like that. And I said, 15 years, that, <laughs> that opening sentence took me 15 years to write. I mean, it was sort of building in me somewhere, even though I never thought I would return to it. So that's how really it just from then on, I understood the way that I wanted time to move and, and I wanted these characters to be carrying along their pasts and also inhabiting their futures as we were reading about them in whatever slice of life they were in. I remember taking a writing class at one point and it was like we were all explaining things so much. And I remember the teacher saying something like, don't underestimate the reader. The reader can pick things up so quickly and figure things out. And I feel like you've given so much respect to the reader here to be like, I'm I'm in it. I get it. And I can follow you wherever you go. But it's really masterful to pull it off. I mean, it sa- might sound simple, but it is not. <laughs> so anyway, that was great. That. Um, And interestingly, you're talking about memory, right? And all of how our our past experiences build into who we are at a certain time and going down these rabbit holes, if you will. But yet Mimi is struggling so much with even being in the here and now as her memories all slip. And so you have to inhabit her character and try to portray a world where everything is like the ultimate time mashup is sort of how it is at the end. Talk about writing that. Yeah, there were there were there were two particular points of view that I was sort of on the edge of my seat as I was writing them because I thought, can I can I do this? Is it is it doable and is it doable by me? And one of them was Mimi. Uh, Mimi Wilf is the uh, mother of this family, the Wilfs. Um, and when we first meet her, uh, well, when we first meet her, she's younger. But when we meet her again, we really sort of enter her consciousness. 
she's in the throes of, of Alzheimer's. And, you know, I, I, I knew something about that. I had been, I'd had a front row seat to my beloved mother-in-law's decline. And I think, I mean, I certainly was never sitting with her and thinking I would ever write a character like that. It just, I never thought about it. But when Mimi, when Mimi's mind started slipping away, one of the things I thought about was that she, she no longer recognizes people and she doesn't really know where she is. She's kind of unstuck in time herself, but she does know who she loves. She, she, she experiences love. She might not be able to recognize her grandchild or, or her, 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 her child, but she knows that this is someone that she loves. And in a way, what she's trying to do is get home to them. And so with that understanding and also the unpinning of time so that she is really at every age she's ever been in her mind and you know, the ways in which, and I don't, I mean, I I don't know that that's what it's like, but I imagine that that might be what it's like. And, you know, so much of writing a novel is an act of the, the empathic imagination or compassion. And one thing that really felt new for me in Signal Fires is that I had like endless stores of compassion for all of my characters. And in other fiction of mine, there's tended to be, I mean, there are difficult characters in signal fires, but somehow the narrative voice allows for us to really understand um, these people and to feel for them. And I think I always, I've always felt for all of my characters, but I'm not sure I had quite those stores of empathy. It's, it's as if the narrative voice of, of the of the novel itself is like a maternal voice mm-hmm. um, that's holding all of these characters can't can't intervene can't fix things can't make their lives perfect sometimes stands back and goes oh no I wish I wish you wouldn't do that but still has such love for them so I think that that's how I approached Mimi in that way and then the the other character where I was really on the edge of my seat writing was there's a scene and I don't want to give too much away but there's a scene where I'm I'm basically writing in a, in a newborn's uh, point of view for just a couple of pages. It couldn't go on very long, <laughs> but I thought, can I do this? I mean, accessing, it's exciting for me as, as, as a writer to access something that is both universal, familiar, and that isn't something that I have direct um, conscious experience of. It's almost like a maypole. You remember and like how all those things go Oh like yeah, all the different things, and then by the end of it, you have a wrapped pole, if you will. That's that's yeah. beautiful, and I feel like that's the way you threaded all the things. I mean, even a character like Shankman, who is not particularly a savory character, right? And and it took a lot to sort of get you to come. I feel like finally at the end, we sort of can empathize a lot more, and there's almost this like sort of sadness, and you know, I don't know, almost not nostalgia, but it's like this melancholy feeling we have towards him, you know, like opportunities lost, right? Like what did he miss out on? So it's even, you could, and, and even a character like that, whose behavior at some times is not the best can be redeemed in the overall sort of beautiful end product. That, yeah. was, a, that was a ramble, but 
go with me. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. I, 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 Shankman for me was the character where I'd be sitting back and shaking my head going, Oh, Shankman, mm-hmm. Oh, Shankman, you know, get out of your own way, do better. You're better than this. You can do better than this, but he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And to me, he's actually a pretty tragic character because, you know, he, he, he's, he's, it's not a spoiler to say, basically he's not a good dad mm-hmm. and he's not a good dad. Paradoxically, because he loves his son and he wants the best for his son, but his idea of what's the best and his own insecurities don't allow him to meet his son where he is. Mm -hmm. Um, And also his son, Waldo, is a very special boy. And, you know, specialness is not always rewarded in middle school. And you know who who would really want to go back to middle school given given the opportunity? I mean, I I know I wouldn't. That and is, that's actually what the middle school head of my kids' school. We had a fifth grade like pre fifth grade parents seminar, and he had all of us raise our hands and say, "Okay, who would actually go back to middle school right now?" And like, no one raised their hand. A couple yeah. of people raised their hand. <laughs> yeah, I I did that in a in a in a in a in a, in, a, in front of a big audience at the Miami Book Fair a couple of weeks ago. And and I, I asked the same question. I was interviewing Paulina Poroskova, and and she was talking about the misery of being six feet tall in 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 middle school. And I I asked you know like a couple hundred people how many of you would go back, and one person in the front row raised her hand, and that was it. Out of so 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 Waldo is, you know, Shankman wants Waldo to have an easy life, and Shankman's idea of what that would look like is be quote unquote normal, do quote unquote normal things. You know, you know, Waldo wants to stare at the cosmos and Shankman wants him to play Little League. It's like that. And he's not able to see the uniqueness and the brilliance of his son. And so he really, really messes up. And, but the thing is, and the thing that makes him tragic is he knows he's messing up. He knows He's buying books on anger management. He's he's trying. He he knows his wife Alice is unhappy and disappointed in him and drinking too much Chardonnay. And he knows, and yet he can't get out of his own way. And so, and in the end, he really does feel like he messed up the one thing, the one thing I think we can all agree we most don't want to mess up if we're parents, which is he wasn't a good dad. And so that's, that's tragic, but I had, I had such, I did have such compassion for him because he just, it's like, he came from someone who was like that, that who came from someone who was like that, and he couldn't break the cycle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, I think it represents that we all have something about ourselves that we wish we didn't have. <laughs> and he is like the representative of that, that you know you'd like this little piece of you to change, but sometimes it's just part of the package, like no matter what you do. So I don't know. I feel like he represents something like that as well. I also, I'm just, I also, um, I really loved the character of Sarah Wolf, who is also struggling. I mean, they're all struggling in their own ways with so many different things and identity. And I mean, that's why it's so interesting, but could I, I just wanted to read this paragraph from her point of view, if that's okay. She's describing a New Year's Eve at, uh, in 19 party, like it's 1999. You said it's a cozy domestic scene, the pretty table, the husband back from the market, the twins, their fingers stained pink and blue. She observes it from a few angles, a wide shot a slow pan. It is she herself, Sarah Wilf, who is missing. She's here, sure, but some essential part of her is not fully present. This has been true of her for so long that she hardly even notices anymore, and certainly no one else would notice. She looks the part, she knows that. She has always looked the part. She is tiny, delicate, very pretty. She thinks this with zero vanity, it's just a fact. She inherited her mother's striking coloring, eyes that change with the light, sometimes green, sometimes amber, a long tangle of of dark curls, a heart-shaped face, an innate composure. It all adds up. The degree from the right school, the string of jobs, each more excellent than the last. No one would know that she is only, ever, a few steps away from the abyss. I love that. Thanks for reading that. I I, I haven't heard that read aloud. I mean, and I, I that, yeah, that's really, that's, that's Sarah. <laughs> um, and, and, it's, and it's so many of us. I mean, there's pieces of that in so many women I know, myself included. I mean, you know, I don't, I think, you know, there's the old adage, write what you know, you know, this is not an autobiographical novel, but I also think it's not a novel I could have written any sooner in my life, even though I tried, because there's that, there's that feeling of understanding that, you know, people's shiny exteriors often don't tell the whole story. In fact, never tell the whole story ever. I think we could probably you know, just say that. And, and one of the things that literature gets to do in a very direct way is access the interior life in that way is, is access the, you know, we can, we can see what those party guests might see when they look at Sarah Wilf. And we can also have direct access to her own monologue, the things going on in, in, in her mind that are, are private and, and, and secret you know, only, only to her. Well, I thought it was really a beautiful passage because, you know, we, you're right. We never know what's going on. And also that that time of life is so hard, the juggling and how much is going on. And it's not always the most personally rewarding when you're a caretaker nonstop, but there are so many caretakers in your book who 
who deal with it in different ways too. I mean, Benjamin Wolf with Mimi is also, also becomes a huge caretaker and he has a, a very different approach. Can I, I'm just going to read one more paragraph and then I, I promise I'm done. So this is from Benjamin's point of view a little bit later. And he says, his bride, his wife, his life, she slipped away slowly. Parts of Mimi remained present for so long that it had been possible to have minutes, even hours of pleasure together. Her smell, fresh, milky, a hint of the oil, the immortal flower. She spread over her face each morning. She had always hummed while cooking, gardening, showering, walking, and she still hummed, hummed, though now the tunes had changed. It took Ben a while to realize what was different, and when he did, it was with a sharp pang. These were now childhood melodies. She was careening backward in time. Mimi nestled her head into his shoulder whenever he visited her. She spread her crocheted blanket across their laps as they sat on a sofa in the vast living room of Avalon Hills, tucked them in as if they were companions on a long ski lift ride, keeping warm, dangling high above the mountains. Oh, that's another, just so beautiful. So beautiful. Trying to keep hold of her, not let her fall. Like the, oh, it's just, I know, all these different ways that they love and take care for other people and Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. despite what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, I love, I love hearing that. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, to go back to the whole idea of time and the way that, you know, sort of time marched on at those 15 years when the, when, when those characters were basically asleep in the drawer waiting for me to find them again. And in those years, and this was already a preoccupation of mine. I was thinking about the way when we're beginning our families and the choices that we make to move to a particular neighborhood, to send our kids to a particular school, to live in a particular district, in a particular town, to live in the city, to live in the suburbs, to live in the country, that we are entering into a world with other people, the parents you know, the, the parents that you just described in the, in the, in the fifth grade, you know, sort of opening, you know, sort of school opening, the communities that we're in, you know, the, the synagogues, the, you know, the community centers, the, the wise, the, and, and just the neighborhoods themselves. And, and often we don't really necessarily have that much in common with the people that we've basically moved to this place at the same time as had kids around the same ages and 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 yet it's just this extraordinarily potent vivid chapter in a life it's such a potent and vivid chapter that we when we're in it we don't have a sense that it's a chapter mm-hmm. you know that there were all these chapters before and there will be chapters you know god willing after and that those chapters actually add up to more time and more life than the, you know, X number of years of active parenting, child rearing, you know, being in the absolute thick of that. You know, the what what's the expression that, you know, the, the days are long and the years are short. So the days are long, you know, day after day after day. And it and it can feel like this is this is all of life. And so with Ben and Mimi. I was really interested in what their lives were like after their kids were grown, after their kids moved to far-flung parts of the world. And they they remained in Avalon for a variety of reasons. 
Um, you know, Ben's a doctor there. He worked at the hospital. Mostly they were really just entrenched. They couldn't imagine a life somewhere else. And so they stay in their house on this street while the other houses turn over and the Shankmans move in and and the neighborhood changes and, you know, fancier cars start replacing older cars and gym additions get built and kids don't play in the streets anymore. They get carted around by nannies or their parents to their various lessons. And there's just the sense that there is this passage of time and this place and the trees and the stars are unchanged, but but the humanity that's moving in and out of this place is ever evolving. And so that passage that you read of, of Ben and Mimi, you know, on their on their, you know, metaphorical ski lift is is that. I mean, they they are they are living a, a much later chapter in their lives, and yet they're still in the place where they were young parents, where they first moved in as hopeful, you know, just starting out, you know, couple moving moving to Avalon from the city and all of these different phases along the way. And and they're all they're all rich and they're all in their own way beautiful. And I think I wanted to to try to get at that, um, that even in their frailty and even in the loss that is inherent in what's happening in in their marriage at at that point in the book, it's 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 come out of this great commitment and 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 love for each other. I love that. I uh, as you know, I have four kids, but my youngest is now eight, so I feel like I'm out of the woods. I just wrote this essay that says like confession. You know, I'm glad I don't have small children anymore. Like, can I even say that? But it's so hard. Like you, I mean even just having eight-year-old, an eight-year-old is the youngest, is like life-changing. You're like, oh, wow. Okay. So now here I am. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I constantly yes. am thinking about the passage of time and um, how it seemed like forever. And then it's not there anymore at all. Right. You yes. No more diaper bags and all of that. So I'm just wondering because towards the end of the book, and as you said before, the view of sort of the universe is containing sort of like all and nothing at the same time and this where we all fit in as as people. Like what is your, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm wondering what your view is of what happens like after death. And I know you're Jewish and you include like, you know, Yom Kippur references and inheritance was all about, a lot about your, um, your background and your Judaism and all of that. But I'm just curious and what your thoughts are. Thank you. My thoughts continue to evolve and to obsess me. <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this probably all my life. I mean, because I, I was raised Orthodox and that was one set of beliefs and not beliefs that I really ever adhered to, but they were, they were my families and they were, you know, that's, that's sort of like the music of my childhood in a way, or the, you know, it was the, the landscape of my childhood very much was, was, was orthodoxy and going to shul with my dad and 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 then I kind of left all that very much in the dust and 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 really thought well if it's if it's all or nothing then it's going to have to be nothing I can't I can't do all and I and I I wrote a memoir called Devotion that's very much about you know my son probably around the same age as as your youngest you know asked me what I believed and I and it sent me into a total existential crisis because I didn't know how to answer that question. Um, I didn't know. I hadn't, 
I hadn't thought about what I believed in a very long time. And, and I felt like I owed it to him to live inside those questions. And so I wrote, that's what I do when I want to live inside some questions is I write a book. So I, so I wrote, I wrote devotion. And one of the things that happened as a result of writing devotion is it was really a life-changing book for me. And I don't mean the publication. I mean, the, the realization that we are all more alike than we are different. The, it cured me in some strange mystical way of my fear of public speaking, because I would look out, which is a good thing because I've had to do a lot of it. Um, <laughs> I would look out at an audience and just think, you all have the same preoccupations and fears and secret shames and desires and concerns and anxieties as I do. We all do. And we just don't, we just don't talk about them. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not social chit chat. Um, but understanding that in drilling into the specificity of my own history, I really thought when I was writing devotion that I was writing a book that no one would read because it was so idiosyncratically me, you know, you'd have to be raised Orthodox. And I mean, and I didn't know the half of it, but, you know, raised Orthodox and an only child and older parents and, you know, my father died young and my my son was sick. I mean, I, like all this mishmash of my life, I felt like you have to pretty much have that exact overlay to identify with that book. And then, and I, I thought, well, that's okay. I've written a book no one will read. All right. And then the book came out and I started getting piles and piles of mail from people who were Jewish and Christian and Catholic and Muslim and raised fundamentalist and raised atheist and old and young and men and women and all over the world. And I thought, oh, first of all, it was a reminder that the specific really is what's universal. But also I thought, oh, this really is this, this yearning. I remember going and speaking to a conference of female rabbis. It was a national conference of female rabbis. I believe they were reform rabbis. And there were, I don't know, like 75 of them. And what what i came, what i came away from that from that day with was oh the rabbis don't have the answers either they have to act like they have the answers because that's their job but in fact they're yearning too and what is this yearning and um i was on stage with a wonderful rabbi laura geller in in beverly hills during that period of time and laura geller actually said in front of hundreds of people the god of our of our childhoods fails us. And it just went through me. And I thought, I couldn't believe that as a rabbi that she could say that. And, and, and what I saw on the faces of all the people in the congregation was relief, not horror, not like, oh my God, no, you can't tell me that. You've got to tell me that like, you know, God's, God's, a, God's a man with a, a, a big beard in the sky and he's getting us parking spaces or whatever. Just the, the sense that, there is mystery that we don't know. And yet, I guess what I would say is, in, and I am rambling, but in, in Signal Fires, Waldo, he, I said earlier, he's the heart of it for me. He's the voice of that. And in some way or another, I think that's, he embodies something of what I have come to believe, which is that it's all connected. and. And if we can live in that way, or I'll speak for myself, I mean, if I can live in that way, when I am living in that way, I am at my best. I am at my most connected to myself, 
to the world around me, to those who I love, to the strangers passing me on the street, that feeling of like, um, well, you, you, you use the, the beautiful metaphor of the maypole, you know, but maybe like this giant cosmic maypole, <laughs> you know, or the invisible threads is the way that like Ralph Waldo Emerson would have um, described it. That, you know, it's like a tapestry that, that, that connects all of us. And when, when, when I can feel that, I feel that I'm at my most spiritual which is, you know, maybe a tenth of the time, but I, but it's <laughs> goal. Now, my son, my eight-year-old, again, was like asking me the meaning of life the other night. And I was like, well, everybody has to decide that for themselves. But I, I feel like ultimately it is the meaning, the, the point is, he was like, what's the point of it all? And, like, and I was like, I think the point of it is to love, right? Like, that's the only thing we can all do and like make the world better for everyone else. But I don't know. I think anybody who purports to know is, and with such authority, is a, it, it raises questions as well. I mean, how can we, how can anyone actually know when we haven't been there? But anyway, I want to know what is your next project that we can look forward to, aside, I'm assuming, from the continuation of Family Secrets, which you're like a number one podcaster in the world, in case people didn't know that as well. But aside from that and your movie and whatever, so what's, what else, what can we look forward to? So what I am embarking on, or I already did embark, but I'm returning to embarking on um, right now, now that I'm um, coming to the end of the, the the tour for Signal Fires, is writing the TV pilot. So it's in development as as a as a as a TV show, as a series, um, as a dramatic series, and I am writing the pilot, which is it's not something I've ever done. Creating the podcast gave me a real sense of liberation about or um, permission to try things that I haven't done before. Uh, when I started the podcast, I didn't make a big study of podcasting and I had no idea how to create a podcast. I think, I think, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, and learning that this different form of storytelling was something that resonated, something that I love doing. It's completely different from writing fiction or writing memoir. So I'm approaching the the TV this this the series and writing the pilot with that spirit of just wow, I get to I get to try something at this point in my career that I haven't done before. And I also get to continue living with these characters. Because in order to write a TV series, I have to imagine, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of space in signal fires. There's a lot of years where we don't we don't know what we 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 move across decades and whatever happened in those decades doesn't appear in the book. Well, I get to decide now where I want to take them and where I want to go with them while retaining the you know the integrity and the magic of the of the of the novel itself and of who these characters are to each other, but I can expand it out. And so I'm not losing them yet. They still belong to me. And and that's, you know, when you when you finish a novel and you launch it into the world, the characters stop being yours. And they're, I mean, for me, when a reader has an opinion about Schenkman or has an opinion about Waldo, I love it. I don't say like you're wrong, you know. I, I love hearing people, you know, argue about my characters or, you know, it's why book clubs are so fantastic. You know, and and I really feel like they are now, they are now in the reader's hands, not my hands, except that I still get to hold on to them for, in this way, for a little while longer. Was it you who posted today or somebody else, the Joan Didion quote about how first you get to know your characters and then you never want to see them go? 
It's on Instagram. Oh, that's Somebody funny. Else. No, it wasn't me. But um, someone I follow. That was like my first thing that popped up today. I'll have to find it and send it to you. And Zibby, I just want to thank you so much. That was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I always oh. love talking to you. I love talking to you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 